1: Hey, everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Galadriel Allman, who's the author of Please Be With Me, a song for my father, Dwayne Allman. Thanks for being with us, Galadriel.
0: Oh, thanks for asking me. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Let me say from the outset, your book, to me, had a very distinctive kind of Southern voice in some of the passages. So I was just curious where you grew up.
0: I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, which is basically very Southern still, but I also grew up very close to my dad's side of the family. So I heard a lot of Southern voices and I certainly heard a lot of Southern voices doing research for the book. You know, I traveled for about two years talking to all of my father's friends and family. So that was a big part of getting the voice right.
1: Yeah, I grew up in Florida, but it was a lot further south in Miami in the 60s and 70s. But my mom was from Alabama. So, you know, there were definitely some phrasings and stuff that i it just hit me. You know, the, the one that he'd been sleeping late. He'd never done that his whole damn life. And it's like, boy, I've heard that before.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. I once um, was having a conversation with my uncle and he mourned the fact that none of his kids had Southern accents, because we were all raised elsewhere. It's a kind of nostalgic voice for me. It really feels connected to my, my people.
1: And the big house is something that looms large in the Allman Brothers tale. And, you know, I wonder if it loomed large for you. And you grew up some of the time there, right? When you were really, really young. But do you have memories of that place?
0: I don't have memories of it from when I was young. I was about one and a half when we left. But, you know, it's become a museum now. So I go back there probably once a year. And recently, this spring, I actually traveled there with Greg's youngest daughter, Layla, and spent some time with her there. And she played my dad's gold top. And it was really special. So it still sort of looms large as, you know, the family seat. That's
1: in Macon, right?
0: Yeah, it's in Macon.
1: And is it just open to the public? Anybody can go
0: over there? Absolutely. And they've got a beautiful collection. And Linda Oakley, Barry Oakley's wife, even helped redo some of the rooms to look the way they used to look. So it's actually really a pretty fabulous place.
1: Very cool. One of the really unique things about your book that I found is you seem to be on a journey to get to know your father. As you mentioned, you were one and a half when you left there. And I think he died right when you were about two years old. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: You know, he was adored by so many. Fans probably always claimed to know him, and you had a lot of access to people that were there. What was that journey like?
0: Well, you know, right before I turned 40, I sort of had a little mini life crisis where I realized that if I wanted to know more than I knew about my dad, I would have to sort of actively pursue it. Because I think you sort of have these fantasies when you lose a parent that somehow— The people around you are going to start talking about them. And I think there's often a lot of heartbreak around being open about those conversations. So I just decided to really take it as a project. Even before I decided to write the book, I just really wanted to actively pursue finding out more about my dad. And that sort of grew into this. I also worked producing a box set of my father's work called Sky Dog. And it's seven CDs of music and I helped with a lot of that project and that was also really a big impulse to, to write about it because I was hearing all the music and I was you know, getting in touch with people. So that sort of started the journey as well. I always felt a need to look beyond what fans and what this culture around the Almond Brothers Band could tell me. I really wanted to know him as a person. And I wanted to get a broader look of what his life was like starting from his birth, his childhood. And I wasn't really finding those things in the public eye. So that was really where I was coming from is sort of completing the picture of him as the human and not just as a musician.
1: Yeah, because I think most kids probably know their dad or mom, and then if they play guitar, they see them and they kind of channel it and make those two things meet. But in your case, it was really just the music, and then you had to figure out who he was as a person and what the mythology was and wasn't.
0: I mean, my father was 24 when he died. He had almost this sense of being kind of elevated or sort of deified by dying so young and being so prolific and being so talented that a lot of the stories about him that were sort of told and retold really perfected him and made him into sort of this superhero I really found in writing this book that he worked really hard at what he did. And he really pursued it by kind of committing when he was a young teenager to playing guitar. And he really found something that soothed him and gave him an outlet for his emotions. And and I think that in some ways is a much more inspiring story for me and for other people. It wasn't like a lightning strike, you know. I mean, he certainly had some kind of natural affinity and an ability to focus and an ability to commit to something. But he worked hard to get where he got.
1: You know, you explore a lot of that and we'll get to those in the book. It seems that he's constantly working, constantly playing when the band wasn't together, he was doing, you know, studio work and definitely worked at his craft. You write about a keepsake box of letters that Dwayne wrote to your mom. It represented their courtship. And I found it really interesting you mentioned that his handwriting was very neat and even and then the clarity of his voice startled you. What did you learn about from those letters? It seems that would have been really
0: emotional. Yeah, the letters are amazing and I, I've reprinted some of them in the back of the book so you can see them. I mean, I, th- I think the other thing about the Almond Brothers band and the sort of myth around the Almond Brothers, it's almost this southern route that gets simplified in a way and you think that people are going to be like super casual and kind of redneck. I mean, there's all these kind of associations that are very not precise about who they really were. And they were actually really kind of refined and smart and expressed themselves beautifully and had this kind of sophistication. And just to hear the way my father put language together, even when he was sort of folksy, there's a letter that came up recently where he said that I was fat as a hog. He had that Southern gab, but it just had this kind of quality of articulateness and intelligence Think of somebody's voice in a way that makes them more simple than they are. He he was really smart, you know, and that's I think that came through more than anything, and also really romantic, which was sort of surprising. They were a treasure trove for me, and it wasn't just letters to my mother; it was letters to his mother and his cousin Joe Jane, and letters that he wrote to friends. It really did make me realize he was very knitted into his life and really kept in touch with people and was proud of what he was doing, was expressing himself about it. So that was all just great to find.
1: Did you know about this box before you started this project?
0: I did. Yeah. No, I knew that there were letters, but I found other letters along the way to other people that I didn't know about. But yeah, I had had known about my mother's letters. I don't think I had read all of them. I think she had reserved some of them because they were more personal. But yeah, they're sort of her treasures for sure.
1: Well, you know, it's nice to hear that it's kind of your dad's voice in his story. Uh, You talk to a ton of people in the book, but you know, those letters certainly articulate who he was at that period. And like you said, they were so young.
0: I wonder what it's going to be like in the future when you can't come across a box of paper letters. I mean, it's such a gift if you're doing any kind of research to find actual documents and old photos and papers. I spent a lot of time looking through people's boxes, finding little scraps of things. It does, it brings it to life. And all of his letters were on motel stationery, the downtowner in Macon and the Holiday Inn in New York. And it really gives you a sense of what the traveling life was like.
1: And it sounds a lot more interesting than searching through someone's old text, right. that's for sure. Most Allman Brothers fans know the story about the band's first kind of proper jam session in Butch and Linda Trucks' living room. You tell that story really beautifully and, and almost poetically how that moment was where everything flowed, and that's your quote. Can you tell that story real quickly to our listeners?
0: Sure. The special thing about that story is that Dwayne had met JMO, and he had met Barry, and they had both come to Fame Studios in Alabama, in Muscle Shoals, to jam with him. He knew Butch Trucks from a previous life in the Almond Joys. They had toured around the South and played a lot of the same clubs that Butch had played in a couple of different bands. So he knew. Him and knew that he was in Jacksonville. He went to Jacksonville to see Barry with J-Mo and pulled in Butch Trucks. Well, Barry was playing with Dickie, so he pulled in Dickey, and it happened sort of organically. You know, everybody ended up in the same room. It was sort of casual. They were going to, you know, plug in instruments and stand in the living room and play music together. To-, to hear Butch talk about it was really incredible. He loved to tell this story. It really took on a life of its own, and it opened up, and everyone went from riffing on sort of blues standards to really exploring and sort of bringing all of their own musical taste to the table. And it got kind of psychedelic and it got more rock. Right away, it was all there. And they played for three hours and just, you know, met each other where they were. It was an experience that none of them had had before. As much as they'd all been working musicians in club scenes and in bands that they put together, it was a bigger sound. It was a different sound. And it really excited them. This sort of beautiful period on the sentence is that, you know, my dad apparently said anyone that doesn't want to be in this band has to fight their way out of this room. You have to get through me because he was so passionate and excited about it.
1: That's pure Duane from what yeah. I've read of your book. He waited a bit to bring Greg in, very much your dad's band, but Greg's voice is equal parts, I think. I can't imagine anyone else fronting that band. And that was the moment, really, where Greg found himself, too, within that music, even though they had played together. But that was the moment, right?
0: The band that they were in together just before the Almond Brothers was called The Hourglass. and. By all accounts, the Hourglass was a really great band. You know, they actually played a lot of covers and a little bit of original music. Greg had started writing songs. They signed a contract with Liberty Records in Los Angeles and were really asked to sort of become more of a psychedelic band. And it wasn't really who they were. They had the sound that they weren't happy with. And they started to play blues and on their own time, and it was rejected by their label. So there was this sense that they were all headed toward that music, that was the music they grew up with, that's what they loved. But Greg had stayed in Los Angeles to sort of fulfill the hourglass contract, and Dwayne had gotten really fed up with it and had left him. And so they had been apart for nine months, which was the longest they were ever apart in their lives. And Dwayne had left to go and be a session musician, basically. He went directly to Fame Studios and kind of convinced Rick Hall to take him on. And Greg stayed behind in this crazy Los Angeles scene And they were estranged and they were actually, you know, it was sort of a big argument between them. So they weren't actually speaking. And the first time that they spoke was when Dwayne called him and said, I've put together a band and you're the only one that can sing for my band. And Greg would really say that it was one of the biggest compliments he ever got. And he got on a plane.
1: We're speaking with Galadriel Allman, who's the author of Please Be With Me, A Song for My Father, Dwayne Allman. One of the things in the book that you do remarkably well is break down the music. I mentioned to you off air and you said, no, I'm not a musician, but it's definitely in my blood. But there's a couple of things that really blew me away. And I love there's a game that you suggested for listening to their legendary Fillmore East record. Can you you care to share that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a game I played with myself, which was really trying to find my father In the music, because the twin leads that he played with Dickie and Dickie's own, you know, incredible power as a musician, I when I was little, I couldn't really tell them apart necessarily. And as I grew older, I could pick him out more carefully. So I started to sort of play this game where I would listen to Fillmore East in particular and just sort of follow any one of the musicians and just try to focus on that. Because you know, Barry is an incredibly melodic bass player, and you can sort of just listen to him focusing on the drums. You know, they do incredible riffs and kind of take off. And it's such complex music, and it's so sort of symphonic in moments that sort of trying to focus your mind on one player, it's really cool. And, and it, it sort of opens up the music for you and makes you appreciate what each of them were doing separately. So that was sort of my game.
1: It's a lot harder than it sounds, too. You're right about that. Because after I read that, I tried that. And, you know, the beauty of their music is how it kind of rises and swells together, you know, and at some point, I'd be listening to it. And then I'd be like, Oh, I'm lost. I'm on this other guy now. And, you know, I get back into what they're all doing together. But um, I thought that was a really neat thing to learn the complexity, as you said. You know, another thing that I, I really liked is per Johnny Sandlin, who was the recording engineer for that album, and how, how they mixed it, which was really fascinating.
0: Yeah, I mean, they really wanted, especially for the live album, they wanted to capture what it felt like to be an audience member looking on the stage. So it's actually mixed in, in the exact way that they stood on stage. So if you're facing the stage, Dwayne is to your left and Dickie is to your right. So it makes it easier to find which one's which. And it also just shows the sort of loving detail that they put into crafting the experience of listening to that album.
1: That's, that's amazing.
0: Yeah.
1: Also, in an, in an effort to understand the scope of your dad's work, uh, you put together a list of all known Allman Brothers shows from 1969 to 1971. And as you mentioned, you know, these guys are definite road dogs. And that's the staggering project. Uh, what did you learn from doing all of that work?
0: Well, I tried to do it. I mean, one of the main things I learned is that it's almost impossible to do because they also would stay an extra night somewhere or play a free show that isn't listed anywhere or play in a park and not record it. So... You know, I did the sort of official shows, I typed them all up, and even typing them was exhausting in one sitting. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of shows from 69 to 71. It's staggering. It's hundreds and hundreds of shows. And I really got an appreciation for the fact that there was no downtime. I mean, they were touring like over 300 days a year in 1971. So it's really impressive and at some point I really do hope to get an absolutely complete list and it's something I sort of still want to do so it's public record because it's pretty amazing.
1: I'm sure those fans are quite completists and emotional about that band. That'd be a very interesting project.
0: Yeah. And fans are an amazing resource for all kinds of information. I mean, even pictures that surface that, that are people's snapshots, you know, there's still new things surfacing that people find. So, yeah, I mean, and, and the big house is a great place to take it if you have photos or if you remember a show that was obscure or they came to your college. You know, the big house is really the place to sort of tell those stories.
1: Of course, the session work your dad did is also remarkable, and most of the time that was before the band really took off, although there, he seemed to be going in and out of session work all the time, right? And uh, you know, some of that list, it's Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett, and, and of course, Eric Clapton. Derek and the Dominoes is a high point of rock and roll, I think. Um, but unfortunately, as I learned in your book, not necessarily a great business decision for your dad. Can you touch on that story?
0: Well, sure. I mean, it wasn't a business decision. It was it was the inspiration of meeting one of your heroes and, and an equal. You know, I think that was really what was going on. I mean, it was pretty casual. You know, Tom Dowd took Eric Clapton to an Allman Brothers concert while they were recording Derek and the Dominoes in Miami. He was really impressed with the band and asked them all to come back and jam. And they did that, and he plucked Dwayne out of that and asked him to stay And so it wasn't something that was covered by a contract or was thought about in a business kind of way. His manager did call him and say, you know, don't play a note until we've gotten the financial side hammered out. But that didn't really stick. And there wasn't a signed paper contract. And yes, for later in, in my life, it became a big issue trying to get him acknowledged for that because there there were royalties paid and it went on for years and unfortunately they had completely stopped so I was yeah I was involved with trying to correct that for almost 20 years I pursued that and let's just say that Eric Clapton is very powerful now and that's a really big part of his legacy and he's well protected you know he has the best legal <laughs> advice he can have I'm sure so Dwayne wasn't paid equally to what he the work that he did let's just put it that way
1: Right. And you've got, you know, one of the legendary records. And I'm sure that no amount of lawyering was going to say to Dwayne, don't go in there and play with your peer, who, who's a legendary figure as well. He, he was going to play.
0: Of course. And, and, you know, I mean, the times were such that they weren't thinking about money at all. You know, I mean, the, when the Allman Brothers started, they were surviving on checks that some of the roadies had from the VA. And they were buying groceries with that money. And they were sleeping in one person's apartment with mattresses all over the floor. I mean, money was never the point. And it was a really, you know, they were struggling. They, were, they started with nothing because they wanted to be together and focus on the music. And my dad said this later to Butch Trucks, you know, the money's going to come in and the fun is going to go out. So in some ways, money wasn't on Dwayne's mind really ever. I mean, it was nice once it started coming in to sort of be able to get by without thinking about it. But that was never the point.
1: Plus, there were also weather 21, 22. Easier time for sure. Probably my very favorite part of this book. It probably coincides with the Dwayne Allman anthology, which I've had on for years. And I just love that music. But you had these conversations with Rick Hall of Fame Studios. Can you talk about some of the things that you learned and the people you spoke with from that period?
0: Rick was such an amazing character, you know, in life and in music. And his story is just remarkable. And I hope people have seen the Muscle Shoals documentary that really tells Rick's story in detail Johnny Sandlin, who was my dad's best friend and was a member of the Hourglass, he was the drummer, and he became a producer that worked with the Allman Brothers throughout their early years. He took me in his car, drove me to Fame Studios to talk to Rick. And almost as soon as I stepped through the door, Rick just launched into talking about my father. He had clearly told the story many, many times, but he was incredibly warm and he was really lively. So I really tried to capture quirks of his language and his enthusiasm, telling the Story, you know, he would say things like, you know, Dwayne would hug his neck and he would say things to Dwayne like, you know, stop nipping at my ankles and. They loved each other and they were really different. You know, Rick was sort of conservative in his approach, very hardworking, really focused. And my dad came in there dressed like a hippie. And in 1968, 1969 in Alabama, they'd never seen anyone like him. You know, he pulled up in a milk truck wearing bowling shoes with hair down to his shoulders. And those were the sort of great details about the culture shock of having Dwayne walk in. And he really just earned his spot by... Playing, he started to just play guitar, and Rick couldn't deny him. And to his credit, Rick immediately threw Dwayne into sessions with some really seasoned, incredible R&B players. I mean, you know, Arthur Connolly and. Wilson Pickett and Clarence Carter, within like a week of knowing him, he was he was really had faith in him. So out of that came some incredible songs, you know.
1: I would have loved to have seen some of those faces when they walk in and he's in there in his bowling shoes and ready to go.
0: Yeah. Now, it, it was
1: also Dwayne's idea for Wilson Pickett to record Hey Jude, wasn't it?
0: It was. I think that was a favorite story of Rick's to tell. And it was pretty incredible. I mean, basically, the way that my dad dressed and his whole kind of vibe was really shocking. And it was also really segregated. And even though Wilson Pickett was incredibly successful and incredibly admired, being in Alabama, he couldn't go to lunch into a diner with the the white studio musicians that he was playing with, which is just crazy. So he would hang back and would stay in the studio while they went out to lunch. And my father hung back with them because, you know, for the same reasons, they would just get at and possibly mistreated if they went to a restaurant. So they hung out together alone while everyone was at lunch. And Hey Jude was climbing the charts for the Beatles. It was the sort of hit of the day. And, you know, having been in the hourglass, it was sort of second nature to my dad to sort of learn every song that was out there just naturally, just hearing it, he could kind of pick it up and play it. And he loved the song and he thought it was great. And he pitched it to Wilson And Wilson just went along with it. You know, they started just hammering it out together alone. And when the rest of the band and Rick came back from lunch, you know, Rick freaked out. He was like, what are you talking about? We can't do a Beatles song. We can't do a song that's charting right now. That's a crazy idea. They just started to do it. And Wilson was completely behind him. So they recorded it. And it really is. It's just fire. You know, it really has this kind of passion to it. That's just exciting still.
1: That's the perfect word for that version is fire. And another one, which might be the other side, but it's, it might be my favorite one, is Boss Gags' Loan Me a Dime, which is, is incredible. And uh, you called Dwayne's playing on it or the song Astounding. Yeah. What, what was it about that song and Dwayne's playing? I think that's probably one of the lesser known tracks, but everyone should hear that song.
0: Everyone should hear that song. I mean, again, that was a great story told by some of the studio musicians that are known as the Swampers. You know, they all became famous for their role in all of their work in Muscle Shoals. It was recorded at Muscle Shoals Sound. You know, Boz had come there to sort of capture that flavor, that sort of Southern flavor. He was from San Francisco and had been, you know, successful in his band, but he was sort of branching out. And he got to play with these incredible musicians and asked Dwayne to come and sit in because they were friends and they jammed on loan me a dime and it just went off in a direction of a sort of improv extended improv that I think blew all of their minds and when they got back into the control room everyone sort of sat there and listened to the playback and with their mouths hanging open they just couldn't believe what they captured and that was the part of the story that I loved the most is that they could feel it while it was happening but even listening back to it they all really knew what they had and then it was special that's the thing about this whole era of music that is really inspiring is that there was sort of time to kind of stretch out together there was a real sense of musicians just taking the time to express themselves and have this freeform approach to things and I think that my dad really shined the most in those moments that are sort of unplanned and when he's with players that really inspire him
1: yeah and I think the diet on which you know these guys from uh, Daytona or, or Macon or wherever they are all from, you know, what they're consuming musically is just so diverse as well. Uh, and that's, you know, the jazz of the day and the country and the blues. And it was just, you know, you're listening to so much and just kind of funneling it all into one IB. It's, it's really amazing. And it's not around very much anymore.
0: Well, right. I mean, I think that that really is the strength of the Allman Brothers Band, is you can almost go through the whole band and talk about what they were bringing. I mean, J-Mo really brought jazz. He brought a completely different background and he brought records with him and they were listening to it. And then, you know, Butch was a sort of a classically trained drummer. He had played sort of symphonic music. He had played in a marching band. You know, he had this kind of metronome style and he had been in a folk band. He had been playing sort of Dylan songs and he was coming from there. And I mean, Dickey really came from a family band and the musicians that were playing real Americana, sort of Southern blue glass infused, you know, music that was really technical and loved kind of country swing and that kind of. And but also loved Django Reinhardt, you know, so he's bringing in that. And then Barry loved the Grateful Dead and had this real ethic about community and playing for the people. And he had this kind of hippie aesthetic. So everybody was bringing in what they loved and of course Dwayne and Greg loved the blues they brought in their love of B.B. King and Robert Johnson and all of that so it is kind of this incredible soul stew of everybody's taste
2: hello Pantheon podcast listeners Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds
1: One of the things about your book that is really unique, and as much as it is your dad's story, but there's a huge element that's your story. There's some difficult passages, harder, I'm sure, for you to write than to read, you know, the drugs and the groupies and the girlfriends and, of course, death. But you wrote, I never shut down the storytellers. I wanted to know.
0: I mean, I think that's one of the great advantages of having waited to do this until I was 40. You know, I mean, if I had been 20, which is really the first time I started thinking about becoming a writer and and knew that I'd been born into this incredible story. I wasn't strong enough emotionally to hear the whole range of what was a story that's really infused with tragedy, but now I'm able to see, like, well, yeah, they were in their 20s, and people broke up, and people hurt each other, and people experimented with drugs and got addicted to drugs, and I mean, it's not that uncommon a story, but it's painful when it's your parents, and it's painful when you lose them and can't know what they would have progressed beyond into. It it was nice to have some adult perspective on it, but Yeah, there's a lot of tragedy in the story. I mean, when you start the book, you sort of already know how it's going to end. And it was hard to sort of capture that because they were really tight knit and they all really loved each other. So to lose Dwayne and then to lose Barry, it devastated all of them. And, you know, I knew these people... As adults, you know, from the time they were in their 30s through now, through their 70s, they were changed by it. They were injured by it. That vibe sort of hung over my childhood like a cloud, that they had gone through this real painful loss. I mean, to be at the peak of your power and to be together and sort of in this incredible world that you've created for yourself and have it end like that with someone suddenly dying in a motorcycle crash, it's shocking. And, and my father was such a natural leader and was such a sort of energy source that to have him disappear really took the wind out of everybody's sails and scared everyone, frankly, it was really a trauma.
1: You know, you wrote, and I think it's really the fitting line, is that they got it all, but it didn't come cheap. And, um, you know, there's a lot to learn and digest. And, you know, yeah. you did filter it quite beautifully through your perspective and your growth and, and all of that. Um, it seems that many of the children of the band members have remained quite close. Is that right? I mean, that's that's quite the extended family.
0: Yeah. And, you know... Greg's children and I have gotten especially close in the last few years, losing Greg. The thing about this family and this story that's really wanted to capture as well is it is about surviving loss for me that was really something I had in common with my uncle he would sort of look at me and I would look at him and we would both think of my father and there was this sense of like I know what you lost and you know what I lost and that was a bond for us and all of the kids in the family Brittany lost her her father as well Barry Oakley and all of the kids lost their fathers to the music I mean everybody was sort of raised by their mothers and watching their fathers live out in the world most of the time. So there is this feeling that the kids share a story as well and share a real bond with each other. So yeah, we're, luck, we're lucky to have each other for sure.
1: Otiel Burbridge, who played bass in the Allman Brothers for 17 years, he wrote a beautiful piece about you and your book on his website, and everybody should go check that out. What's your relationship like with Othiel and and what did that mean to you? It was just incredibly touching.
0: That was truly one of the most incredible things to come out of this. I mean, O'Teal is an incredibly sensitive, warm, generous guy every year, the Allman Brothers would play a month of shows in New York City on the Upper West Side of the Beacon Theater. And it was re- it was really like a family reunion for all of us every year. So I very proudly personalized a book for each band member, and some of the road crew and some of the family members and took a box of books and gave them to everybody. And that was really, you know, that was a great feeling to do that. And within a few days, you know, O'Teal was calling me in the mornings and saying, Oh, my God, I just finished chapter three. I can't believe I didn't know that story. <laughs> you know, so he was like, he was really responding to it in real time in this incredible way. And then, yeah, when he finished the book, he wrote an open letter about it. And it's really, really beautiful. And I think one of the main gists of it is really that I told the women's story. You know, I was telling the story of my grandmother, Dwayne and Greg's mother, Geraldine, and my mother and the children. And it was sort of replacing a piece of the story that Oteil, coming from the music side, didn't know. And that was incredibly gratifying. The book
1: is Please Be With Me, a song for my father, Dwayne Allman, and Galadriel Allman, we'd like to thank you so much for joining us. I know the book's been out a while, but hopefully you get a new uh, cache of readers here. It's definitely, I've read hundreds of books, but this one is is really special, and uh, I congratulate you on that.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Steve. This was really a pleasure. You know, that's the great thing about making something like a book. It stays out in the world. So I hope that people still find it. And if they like it, pass it along to a friend. And hopefully it's out there having a life of its own now. So I'm super proud to do this.
1: You should be. It's a great book. Well, thank you, Galadriel. What are you have going in the future? Anything new?
0: Yeah, a few things. I basically work for my dad's music all the time, you know, as making choices for Almond Brothers Band's packages and things. And, you know, we just released Laid Back, which was Greg's solo album that came out right around the time of Brothers and Sisters. It's been remastered and all of the albums have been put onto colored vinyl that's being released. And the live concert that they played at Fillmore West is coming out. So there's a lot of music and a lot of historical reissues that are always coming out and I'm writing a novel that isn't about the Allman Brothers um, but it is about music and it's about teenage girls and friendship and I'm probably six months away from finishing that knock on wood yeah and there's uh, there's actually something in the works that I don't think I can talk about yet but I'm going to do something special in 2020 for my dad's 75th birthday
1: there's a teaser
0: um, it's still in the planning stages so I can't really say but, but yes we're going to celebrate in a big way
1: if you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.folsound.com. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time. And thanks again for tuning into deep dive and all music books podcast.